Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, Episode 76 for January 25th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 15. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. Time for security now. My favorite security expert is here. Actually, one of my best buddies of all, Steve (laughs) Gibson. I always enjoy talking to you every Thursday on security now. And, you know, Steve's so dedicated. I I have to leave town next week uh, to go to New York to do Regis and Kelly and then go on another geek cruise. And most of the other podcasts are going to have to take a couple weeks off because I'm out of town. But Steve said no. We will not miss an episode. <laughs> Steve, I bow my hat to you. Right, so. We're doing three today, Leo. Wow. We've got some yep. good episodes uh, ahead. You know, I was looking at a device that would allow me, in theory anyway, to do these shows anywhere, if, even if I had just kind of lousy Wi-Fi. And we're going to test this out because maybe, you know, my dream is someday to be on a boat doing this show. <laughs> We'll see. Steve's Steve's never giving up. He's never gonna he's never gonna not do his show. I love it, and I get to catch up on our episode numbers as I listen you to are. where Twit and and the other long you know the you other long standing podcasts. The are, only so. ones you can't compete with are the uh, the Daily One, uh, the Gizwiz, and uh, the oh, KFI goodness. show. Yeah, it's right. been going That's for three right. years, yep. and uh, and it's going to continue on apparently. So uh, you'll never catch up with that one. But this is episode 76. That's a Mod 4 episode. That means in uh, in our Mod 4 speak, we've got questions and answers, our 15th question and answer episode yep. this week. But before we do questions and answers, let's talk about uh, last week's show. Well, yeah, I, I have some errata, sort of in general, sort of different things. First of all, um, toward the end of last week's show, we mentioned that I had finished Securable, which is GRC's latest freeware to show you what features, what security-related features um, your processor, your system's current processor has. What's funny is I was working on the web page when, and it still wasn't public, when I went over to Twit to check something and saw that because you were on the East Coast, three hours ahead of me, you, would, you had already pushed out the podcast. Oh, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, it's okay. I mean, you know, normally it's sort of late in the afternoon or in the early evening. But yeah. anyway, so I, I quickly got the page up, but a couple people commented that the, the you know, grc.com slash securable was not present when they were listening to the podcast. So I wanted to make sure that everyone knew that only was the case for, I don't know, actually when when the podcast went up. But anyway, it uh, as soon as I saw that it was up, I put a page up, even though I wasn't really finished with it, then I continued to work on it for a few more days. So grc.com slash securable s-e-c-u-r-a-b-l-e it's also linked to from our homepage, just grc.com and people will be able to grab this little bit of freeware i think it's about 108k which you know leo is big for me um it's because i i signed everything it's got a kernel mode device driver built into it it also has a whole bunch of text and some graphics so you know it's a little larger than my normal 23k 
uh, XE, but you don't have to install it. You just download it and run it, and it tells you what you've got. And actually, there's a lot of really fun information on the Securable page that I think people will, will find interesting as well. Excellent. Well, that's my fault, not your fault. And you know what I've, I've decided to do? Because it is inconsistent. In fact, sometimes I, I forget till like, you know, Friday to put the podcast out because it's just whenever I, I think of it. Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, shoot for a, a consistent time every Thursday. Would would noon Pacific on Thursday work for you if I would just say that's our goal to get the podcast pushed out then? Um, whatever you want to do, I think maybe we should be having this conversation off the air because, <laughs> <Okay>. if we, <laughs> because if we commit to noon and then suddenly, you know, for whatever reason, one of us it isn't available or something. I have, some new, like, ah. I have some new software. Perhaps I'm relying on it a little much, but I have some new software that supposedly will publish these uh, on a schedule. And oh. so I'm going to try it for these next three because I will be kind of incommunicado. Uh, if, if they come out at noon... That Pacific works for me on Thursday for the next three weeks. <laughs> then then that's the commitment. If not, we'll have to, you know, take it back to the drawing board and see. But I, I in theory, I can I can I can enter it into this software and then it, and come noon on Thursday, it'll pop, it'll push it out. Cool. We shall see. Cool. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, since we were talking about AACS so much, and of course we had had Peter Gutman on a couple weeks ago and the whole Vista content protection thing, which actually is going to be uh, our topic next week because we're going to talk about Microsoft's formal blogged response to Peter Gutman's paper next week. Ah. But um, but I did want to mention that I just, as actually catalyzed by all of this, I purchased a Toshiba, the second generation Toshiba HD DVD player. And I'll, I'll remember that we were talking about how it's Linux based and so forth. And that thankfully it takes less than a minute to recognize the DVD when you insert it. The first one, the first generation player apparently was a little underpowered in terms of its processing power. So it took really a substantial length of time to go through all the decryption mumbo jumbo that, you know, any high def content that is all scrambled is going to require. Mm-hmm. So, I've been. I've watched a few things. I watched Tomb Raider as I was as I was saying I was going to, <laughs> and also the first two Mission Impossible's. I have the three boxed right. HD Mission Impossible set, and I, I have to say I was not that impressed really? with 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 the visual look of HD. But then last night I watched Pitch Black, mm. which was the first. It, it's the it's it's the sci-fi with Vin Diesel. Uh, which where where they he crashes on with with a bunch of other people on a weird planet in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and they're besieged with the planet's native uh, and not friendly flying things. Uh, anyway, it was stunning, and so I realized that not all HD DVD is created equal. Yes, yeah. and that it's funny because I was talking to Mark Thompson about this. And about I was like bemoaning the fact that the the D, the DVDs were all saying they were 1080p, which technically means their resolution is 1920 by 1080, which is substantially greater, for example, than my screen, which is sort of first generation HD, which is 1280 by 720. So I can do 720p, that is 720 progressive, but not 1080. Mark's feeling is content isn't even isn't even digitized at that at, at the higher yeah. hd resolution it's and upscale. frankly yeah yes and and so the idea being people who like go to some real extremes to go to 1920 by 1080 to get 1080p 
may be really disappointed. I've, and I've read a number of uh, columns lately that suggest exactly that. In fact, even say that if you have a good upscaling 1080i display, and and some of it does depend on the on the on the software, the the DSP and the and the uh, TV. But if you have a good display that can upscale, it's going to look almost identical to a 1080p source. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And you know, so so my experience has been, I just sort of wanted to to share this with everyone because these are all the viewing experiences were in the same setting, same distance from the screen, same lighting conditions. And so, I mean, I was really able to do some, you know, for me, my very first, you know, quiet analysis of, you know, is high def worth, you know, all of this hassle essentially. And, and I have to say that on a, on a properly, on a properly digitized movie, it can be phenomenally better, but, so far, I'm only one movie out of four that I've watched has 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 it really been hmm. a discernible difference, which I I was really thought was interesting. Yeah, I you know I also have an HD DVD player. I use my Xbox 360. I've been very impressed with the ones I've seen so far. King Kong looks fantastic, um, which of course is boxed along with the uh, that's 360 right. player. Right? So that's why I saw that one. Uh, I have Sea Biscuit that looks very good. What else have I watched? I've only watched a handful. There aren't that many HD DVDs. And ironically, I haven't seen any of the ones that you just mentioned. Um, the one that I'm salivating over, uh, not because of the content. Uh, yeah, but see, because I, I choose I've... them for the content. Not for the... <laughs> <laughs> well, Eon Flux oh, is dear. one of the worst movies ever made. But I guess if you like Tomb Raider, you're going to love that. Well, OK. And it is apparently, I mean, the, the, the HD DVD reviews I've read have ah. said it's the best looking disc they have ever seen. OK, so that'll be. Worth so, I mean, I, I really am interested in, you know, in, in like in the in getting into seeing what the HD ness of this, you know, is same, all about. Same thing happened when DVDs came out. There were in fact, I remember when CDs, audio CDs came out, they were very bad transcriptions and then eventually you know people realize hey you can't just take the record play it into a microphone and put it on a cd <laughs> and the same right. thing happened with dvds and i expect the same will happen with hd dvd especially right. as as discerning viewers start to become aware of this they're going to have to i mean you you see every defect on hd dvd right well in fact in and and last night the literally the pores on their skin oh, yeah. was very visible oh yeah you know we're um, shooting well, a call for help in hd now Speaking of pores on my skin, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. we, we, we yeah. actually will be using air, believe it or not, airbrush makeup. Uh, we started using it in uh, Toronto, and that's 4HD. Right, very cool. Yeah, they yeah. airbrush. Well, and uh, for, for, for those listeners who are listening to Twit and also Security Now, and I imagine there is a, probably a lot of crossover, I, I also listen to Twit, and you guys were talking a couple of weeks ago about the idea of a dual format HD, uh, HD and Blu-ray format player. And it's that out LG, now, by the way. That LG had announced. You can get it now. And I don't know whether you ever noticed the price. $1,200. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it certainly is possible to get a dual format. And frankly, I had believed, and this was just from, from having heard it anecdotally, that there would not be dual format players because licensing restrictions right legally prevented it right. but it's very clear that at least that's not the case so there is hope that that there won't we won't always be stuck in this you know which format do i need to you know like the right. you know the old betamax vhs debacle we're praying we'll see 
Uh, but and I the do last like thing, HD DVD, AACS or not, I have to say, I think, it, I think it's yes. a good format. Well, well and, and okay, so here I am. I'm, I already had the projector, so I basically I had to run an HDMI digital cable because of all of the copy protection stuff that supports HDCP. But once done, the good news is the HD DVDs are not more expensive than regular oh, DVDs. Yeah. So, so it's, it's like, okay... Why would I not buy those? Well, the only reason I would not buy them is if I really had some need to do something with the content other than just uh, watch it. You're right. Because, you know, if, for example, I wanted to strip out the, all the annoying commercials and, uh, or, or the menuing system, I have done that with some of the regular DVDs that I own. I'll reauthor them for my own use so that you put it in and it just plays the movie rather than forcing you to sit there and watch you know their own previews on on like movies that are that are now no longer news because you've owned this disc for for three years. It's like you know that's really annoying. And the other thing that's interesting is that technically it's now illegal for me to do that. But when I bought the discs with the intention and knowledge that I could decrypt them and and reauthor them or compress them for watching on my Palm Pilot, it was not illegal because fair use. In 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 the law, in copyright law, what was in effect? So you know, you wonder. Wait a minute. You know, I could I bought them with the intent of being able to do whatever I wanted to with the content that I felt that I had purchased, and now along comes the DMCA that makes it illegal for me to do decryption. It's annoying. <sighs> and speaking of that, I don't yes. know if you picked up the news that our friend Muselick sixty four yes has not only cracked. HD, but now Blu-ray. And that's because and, it's still AACS. It makes sense, right? Well, but what's interesting is he didn't even have a Blu-ray disc. Huh. Um, somebody who bought a Blu-ray disc was playing the Blu-ray movie in Windows using the Power DVD player, uh, or I think it made a bit, might have been Win DVD. in fact. That guy took a snapshot of the memory image of the of the process, that is the Win DVD process, while it was playing the movie, presuming that if it was playing the movie, <laughs> it would have the, the key. <laughs> the key had to be in memory. <laughs> and what Muselix then did was he, well, so this guy packaged up the memory image and a couple chunks of the encrypted content, which are just files, after all, on his Blu ray disc, sent them to Muselix 64. Muselik 64 did, first of all, his, his decryption, he's continued to work on this since we first talked about it around the, the turn of the year, around Christmas time, was when this news came out that, you know, quote, HD DVD had been cracked, which is not the case, but it is the case that, that it is possible to find the keys. So, so what Muselik did was, he did a, and I, the reason I'm bringing this up is it's some fun, true crypto technology that we've talked about in the past. He did a chosen plain text attack, meaning that the keys are 128 bits. So you cannot just try every possible key. You know, that would be a brute force attack where you start with, you know, all zeros and then all zeros and a one, all zeros and a one zero, all zeros and a one one. And you just go through every possibility. Well, 10, you know, a 128 bit key, you cannot brute force in any reasonable amount of time, as we've discussed in the past. But you don't have to try every possible key. You just have to try 
every possible candidate key. And the candidate keys are the ones that were in memory. That is, you don't know uh, in in the memory image. So you don't know you don't, where the key is. Yeah, but it doesn't matter because the memory image is much smaller right. than all the possible keys. So you just do a rolling slide through the memory. Yes. Wow. You, and, it, and it works. It completely, oh, baby. <laughs> completely works. So all you do is you take the first four bytes and assume that they're the decryption key. Try to decrypt a piece of encrypted content. And, and, and you know what the beginning of the encrypted content looks like because it's a standard MPEG frame. So if that doesn't work, you take bytes 2, 3, 4, and 5. Then you take bytes 3, 4, 5, and 6. Then 4, 5, 6, and 7. You just slide along through memory, and our, our PCs are all fast enough that in a very short time, basically you've searched the image of the, the software image of this thing playing for the key, you find it, and then you can encrypt the, into all the content of the disk. Let's put it this way. It's probably faster to do that than it is for the DVD player to decrypt the AACS, yes. <laughs> given the speed of your, your computer's processor. Yes. Oh. And so here again, I mean, I think we're going to be seeing these kinds of things now coming out from time to time about AACS. And what it really means is that software players are a huge vulnerability for this entire you know, class of new encryption. If the software is decrypting and you have access to the software, then you can't protect it. I mean, and this is fundamentally what I keep saying is the 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 reason this can't ever work the way the the content providers want it to is the something in the user's control over which they have control is displaying an, an one way or another an unencrypted result which means all the information to do the decryption has to be right there in order for it to be you know delivered to the end user sure yeah, so and that's anyway. that's the flaw. People often say, and I'm, we might even have a question in our questions today, but they often say, well, wait a minute. You say you can never crack an, a, an encrypted email. How come you can crack a DVD? That's precisely the reason. The key right. has to exist somewhere. Yep. Yeah, very, very, oh, amazing. Oh, just, I love that kind of stuff. That's, isn't that a perfect hack? Yeah. I mean, it's oh. just a beautiful hack. And obvious, obvious. Um, let's get to the questions, shall we? We've got uh, a good dozen from our wonderful, intelligent, perspicacious listeners, <laughs> starting with Kenneth Can of Boston, Massachusetts, who writes, your recent podcasts have been very inspiring. After testing my system using Securable, yeah, from GRC.com, absolutely free, I had made sure that I had hardware virtualization and hardware DEP enabled. However, this seems to be only available on the Windows platform. Many technologies discussed in the show and some that I've researched on Wikipedia are apparently Windows exclusive. For instance, I've never heard of my Mac OS X having this ability to magically randomize its memory space every time it boots. Does this mean Windows is way more advanced and secure than its counterparts on Unix and Mac? Okay, it was an interesting question. First of all, it, it's worth noting that the um, address space layout randomization, ASLR, was first it first appeared on and as most commonly known over on OpenBSD Unix. So so that notion of randomizing the location of things actually didn't come out on Windows first. It was in the Unixes first, and there actually are some utilities for even bringing this to versions of Windows. Two weeks from now, 
we're going to talk about specific attacks on the hardware DEP, on, on the data execution prevention stuff. So I'm going to hold off a detailed discussion for then, for, for our podcast number 78 in two weeks. But, but it, it is not the case that Windows invented this, nor that this stuff is only available under Windows. And certainly, it's the kind of thing that will be quickly adopted by the open source community because they're able to move so fast. It's a good idea. I, yeah, I don't think it's in OS X. And now, I don't, now, you would think that because OS X is running on Intel, that I know hardware virtualization is available. Is hardware DEP also available? Um, well, it's certainly available. You flip a bit. To, exactly, it's certainly available to the operating system, and it turns out that Sun's Solaris, running on RISC chips, has all has has also always had this capability. So, I mean, it has been around. It just hasn't been a mainstream technology that a lot of attention has been given to. And of course, because I believe it's so potent, I'm you know I've done Securable, and I'll be doing Deputy afterwards in order to really help to raise awareness of this. Yeah, yeah. Eric in Lansing, Michigan asks, when using XP Service Pack 2, would we be safe changing IE7's security from your recommended high to the default medium high? That is, that's how it comes out of the box. If our computer has DEP configured properly. In other words, would DEP prevent unsafe scripting? Oh, good question. Yeah, and a great question. Yeah. Um, so first of all, to to explain a little bit, what, what Eric is saying is that he knows that I believe surfing is just not safe with scripting enabled. Right. So my recommendation is that you convert your security, your normal internet zone security, if you're using IE, to highest security, which disables scripting, and then you selectively trust those domains that you have decided to trust, and you only allow those to run scripting or to run scripting only when necessary as opposed to by default. So he's asking... If hardware DEP will prevent exploitation, does that make scripting completely safe? And unfortunately, it does not, because even if hardware DEP complete, were able to completely prevent any kind of buffer overrun attack, and there, and that's a little bit of a gray area. It certainly is very strong in doing so. Scripting is still unsafe because, for example. What, what the hackers have now found out, and we saw this with a WinZip attack through IE recently, a couple of months ago, they're able to invoke any ActiveX control using IE and then talk to it. So you, there might well be controls that you don't want Internet Explorer to have access to, which scripting enables. So, no, I would say you really don't want scripting, even if you have, if you knew that that there would be no buffer overrun attacks on scriptable ActiveX controls. It's just, it's still not safe. It's not just buffer overruns that are the problem. Right, it's right. scripting. Scripting, scripting is the bad general. thing. Scripting is a bad thing to allow websites to do to you. Right. Although, you know, I was using the NoScript extension in Firefox, and I have been for, for since we talked about this last time. It's such a pain in the butt. Yep, I know. <laughs> I finally just said, I'm taking my chances. Yep. I gave up. And so this is always the balance, isn't it, between convenience and security? It really is. Now, of course, running in a virtual machine solves that problem, too. If, right. you, if you're willing to like run, browse in a VM and shut it down and not save the things that it does, you know, that's really safe, too. Moving along to Topher Slater of Portsmouth, VA. He asks, 
How will retail respond when the key for my video card or HD DVD has been revoked and I want to return it? We were, he's talking about that revocation process yep. where the Motion Picture Association could say, oh, that video card doesn't do what we want it to do. We're not going to allow it to play back DVD, HD DVDs or other premium content. He said, or what happens if I buy a DVD and it will not play on my player? I have to open it in order to find out if it'll work. As of now, they won't take it back. Am I stuck with a $20 piece of plastic? It's a really good question. I I really have to believe that the threat of revocation is easily blown out of proportion. It's it's such a bad thing for, for players, commercial players, to have their licenses revoked that it's it's difficult for me to believe it would ever actually happen. So, I mean, I suppose, I mean, we know it's possible. We know the technology is there. We know that the content providers unequivocally have the, te- the capability of doing that. But you, I just have to wonder how big a problem it really is. And I, and I don't want to scare people by saying, oh, my God, because it can happen, it will. It, it very well could never happen. You know, I, I I think now having heard all the arguments pro and con, it would be such a costly, yep, public relations wise thing for them to do. There's no way that's going to happen. It, it would be a disaster. It'd be the end them. of the, it'd be the end of the of the not the movie industry, but of the MPAA for sure. Right, and and, and you know, to, to get back to Topher's question, he's asking, w- would he be stuck with a worthless piece of yeah. plastic, me- meaning his DVD? And that's Certainly up to the retailer. not. Well, the, well, yeah. So, well, the DVD is still playable. It's not. It, you don't revoke the DVD. You revoke the player or the screen or something in the, in well, the encryption channel. Here's something that actually is a real issue. You can go out and buy an HD DVD, thinking you have an HD DVD player, which you might, but you don't have the proper properly encrypted monitor this happens Ah, all the time right yes very Uh, good point yeah uh, and it won't and you get a black monitor because your monitor either doesn't do hdmi or does hdmi but not hdcp uh that has been happening to people and i guess that's up to the retailer whether they'll take it or back or not yep john hutchinson of claremont florida is worried about land-based viral spreading Uh oh that doesn't sound good he says i have a few questions regarding windows file sharing i use windows file sharing extensively Inside my NAT router, for things like backing up data between machines using an old command script I wrote years ago, and for just moving files around between machines. John, I do exactly the same thing. I back up all the time over my network. Sometimes I map a drive. Me too. Sometimes I just browse using my network places. It's very convenient. I tend to shy away from map drives. I suspect that might make it easier for malware or viruses, should it get one on a machine or on my LAN to propagate. I suspect, however, this is not much of a deterrent as... And if I can browse my network places, so can malware. Yep. Secondly, I have nightmares of someone visiting with a laptop and loaded with bad things using my Wi-Fi to connect and having bad things propagate on my land that way. That does happen. That's why Zotub knocked out CNN about a year ago. So my question is, do you have any recommendations regarding how to make it harder for malware to spread to another machine on my network without sacrificing the convenience that file sharing provides? No. <laughs> oh come on! I do. The, you, the Zotab worm and all of these other worms aren't an issue if you turn on the Windows firewall on each system. That well, yeah, exactly. I was, I was, I was being had, a little being facetious. facetious. Because, See, I've because, been listening to you. I know the answer. <laughs> well, although with, with with Windows firewall up, then you still have a problem of making those machines connect. I mean, that is ah. to say. It, you know, if you have map drives, malware can see map drives. 
So the only thing I can a map imagine, drive just means that, that that network drive has a letter. It's it's drive Z or whatever, and right. And so you can open it as if it were a regular drive. It, exactly. I mean, it, it looks it, it's and very so easy have for to look on the network. To see it. Yeah, I would just say, oh, would, hey, exactly. there's something on the M drive. Yep, you have to do no work in that case. The only thing I could I could suggest would be that if all of your machines are in the same um, the same work group and or domain with the same username and password, then you're able to create a mapping without giving any credentials. However, if you deliberately had different usernames and passwords on the different machines, then you 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 do have to create some credential. You have to give it the logon credentials of the of the target in order to 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 create the mapping. And no malware would know how to do that. So 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 it's again it's it makes it less easy to do this kind of file sharing. You have to not leave static mappings up in against the danger that something could get into your machine and spread. And it means you so you, so that means you got to bring them up and and tear them down when you're not using them. And I mean it's, it's exactly what we always run into, Leo. Like w- what you were talking about about not using NoScript under Firefox because it just it's a pain to have to give sites permissions. Similarly, it's a pain not to be able to use static mappings. But if if you want the security of 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 not having that liability, it's going to be a little bit of hassle. I you know. Okay, <laughs> I, I mean it's, it's a balancing act. It's it a balancing, balancing act. act. I use I use file worried. mapping. I use file mapping myself all over my network, and I'm just very careful not to let anything bad get in. I guess my attitude is, if there's something bad on your network, you're dead anyway. It doesn't it's matter if you trouble. file mapped or not. Yeah. Uh, and if if somebody comes in and uses my network, I think I you know, and which does happen all the time. I think that's why it is important to have an individual firewall on each machine as opposed to the NAT router. Because they're inside the NAT router. Yes, very good point. Dave Gladstone, not far from Peter Goodman, he lives in Auckland, New Zealand, has been doing some thinking about Vista DRM. David says, I've been listening to your discussions of Vista DRM and revocation of drivers. My understanding is that premium content is not necessarily only available on HD, DVD, or Blu-ray media. If so, I was wondering if it would be possible for a suitably crafty hacker to create a viral video, in both senses of the term, that contained revocation lists for a bunch of non-leaking drivers, thus neutering the Vista platform. Wow, this guy's thinking real hard. Yeah. I am sure there must be some cryptographic safeguards to prevent this. Maybe this is a weak link? Is there a single private key that, if compromised, could bring down the whole pack of cards tumbling down? That's interesting. It really so let me is understand what he's suggesting. So he, somebody puts a video up on YouTube. Uh, the video has revocation lists in it. And... But wrong, you know, illegal revocation lists somehow. And and while you watch that video, it's basically disabling the functionality of your video card. Is that possible? Well, what prevents that is that, that there is a single central revocation list authority, which, which is this, I believe it's the 5C authority, if that's the same as who runs AACS. But anyway, it is the AACS authority that maintains the master copy of the revocation list, all of the AACS license players have only the public key that allows them to decrypt the master revocation list. Nobody but the AACS has the private key, which they use to encrypt the master revocation list. So it is not possible for someone to to basically make up their own naughty revocation list and get any players 
that are operating correctly to decrypt it and believe it mm. and apply it. Makes sense. So, I mean, it really, they're, they're, they're this whole, you know, the, the, the jump that we've had in crypto has been hugely le- leveraged by the AACS system using public key and and symmetric key crypto in every way you can imagine so that they've i mean they really have thought through all these scenarios and and done everything they that they can think of to prevent it from being abused the good old public key cryptography helps yep. everybody uh sn listeners mr and mrs sven thomas of Karenport, saskatchewan have been wondering I love reading these. I just love it. <laughs> it feels like old-time radio, doesn't it? Mr. Mister Anserman, we have questions about the HDCP and Vista DRM in general as they pertain to a high-def home video and high-end hobbyist video content makers. While it's clear that HDCP affects only HD and premium HD content that is played back from a commercial HD DVD or Blu-ray disc, what about those of us who use, for instance, Sony camcorders, high-def camcorders, and produce high-def content for ourselves? Is Vista and uh, and our future hardware, including that inside the camera, going to cripple my personal HD content just because it's not digitally signed? Or will the camcorder apply a consumer-type key that will allow any content we create to be played back in high def? He's worried that all this high def content protection is going to impact his personal recordings. Right. And it absolutely will not because his personal recordings will not be encrypted. So just as Hollywood could make a DVD that you could copy... Yes. You get to make a DVD, or even high def, that you can give to your friends and everything. It's not, it doesn't impact you at all. So exactly. it's not the and, fact and that it's high def that's the issue. Exactly. And in fact, the, the same has always been true of regular old standard definition DVDs. Right. If, if, you, if you create your own DVD, for example, from, from your home movies, converting your, your, home, your home old 8mm movies over to DVD... If some, you know, you have some service do that, they'll almost certainly be producing a non-encrypted DVD, which is then freely copyable. I mean, if it's not encrypted, in no way will will anything prevent you from doing whatever it is you want to do with it. D. Smith of Leesburg, VA says, I really enjoy your podcast seminars with Leo. So does Leo, by the way. However, the more I hear about Vista and the diabolical plans for hardware digital rights management, the more I want to find an alternative. <laughs> Every two years or so, I build myself a new system. It's about time for a new one, and I'm anxious to avoid all the embedded complexities that Microsoft is forcing on the hardware guys. All I want is a Core 2 Duo system that will perform well and do justice to my new 24-inch Dell monitor. I have no interest in HD media players. If necessary, I'll also stay with XP Pro for as long as I can, if that's what it takes to avoid Big Brother Bill. Any suggestions? Well, I would suggest doing exactly what I'm doing. I've just put together a a big core two duo. Actually, mine is a core two quad. I I, I named it Quadmire, uh, <laughs> and <I like> it. <laughs> and I'm I'm installing Windows XP Pro. That'll be my new platform because I mean, first of all, we know that I'm a luddite in terms of staying you know, like one major step behind. I'm still using Windows 2000 as my main workstation. And so I'll be moving to XP. I mean, for people who are really put off by Vista, who don't feel that they're getting any benefit from Vista above and beyond, well, enough benefit to to tolerate this sense of losing control of the OS and so forth and so on, then, I mean, I would just say stay with XP. My sense is Microsoft may have a much harder time killing off XP than they want to. They've been forced in the past to continue supporting OSs 
or OS versions that they really wanted to shut down support for, but they weren't able to because of strong demand, mostly from their enterprise customers. They're less less concerned about individual end users, but the enterprise customers just said, no, we're not, we're not going to be ready yet to move up to the next platform. And Microsoft's been forced to continue support. So I would be very surprised if Microsoft's able to kill off XP, given that the only choice is people going to Vista who just don't want to. I wonder if Microsoft would consider making kind of a stripped-down uh, version of, uh, of let's not say Vista, but let's say of Windows that uh, is for people who don't want all of this extra stuff. That's been discussed in our news groups, in, in, on, over in the news groups on GRC. The reason it can't be done is, uh, which is unfortunate, because that would be a tremendous solution. And in fact, maybe you were talking about it on Twitter, because I feel like I've, I've heard this. Well, they make <laughs> I, a, I've heard, I'll, I'll put I've it this way. This. They do make a stripped-down version uh, for the China market of, of XP uh, right. for international and, markets. And of course, we have the, quote, media center edition of, of Windows XP that would, that would sort of lead you to believe, well, how about a, like a non, like a really non-media-centric version of Vista? The reason they can't is that this is this all of this AACS and the so-called the protected video path and the protected audio path they have hugely changed the fundamental kernel of Windows in order to embed this stuff really deeply into the OS it's not something you can simply remove i mean it's it's really a, been a pervasive change to the architecture of, of the OS, making it a, a solid DRM platform. Well, and also from a um, political point of view, they don't want to do this because really what, they're, what, what you're seeing here is Microsoft's response to Hollywood's assertion that all, all a PC is is a piracy device. And really, Hollywood would like to see all PCs neutered, regardless of what you want to do with it. They, they, they see them as every single one as a potential piracy device. They say, look what happened to DVDs. Uh, that's how people use their PCs. So what, we, what Hollywood would like is for not one PC to be sold without this kind of copy protection on it. That's their goal. And I think yep. to some degree, Microsoft's acquiescing uh, by making Vista. And, and, and that's why this DRM is built into every copy of Vista, regardless of whether the machine comes with a high def player or not. Yeah, well, we're going to have next week when when we run through Microsoft's blogged response, David Marsh's response. I think a lot of these issues get covered. It's oh, going good. to be really interesting. Oh, I show. can't wait. That's next week. Good. Yep. Microsoft's response. I can't wait to hear it. Rich in Highlands, uh, Scotland, and I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> Thank you. Well, maybe I will. No, okay. Wants to find a new free email service. He writes, I have a problem. On signing out of my Yahoo mail account, I was horrified to discover that at the bottom of the page it said, quote, notice, we collect personal information on this site, end quote. I also noticed that after signing in, the URL changes from HTTPS, the secure HTTP, just to plain old HTTP colon slash slash. I thought it might be a time for a change from Yahoo. I've heard you talk positively about Gmail several times. However, I just discovered you have to be invited. Can you suggest somewhere I could make an email account that won't take my info and will stay secure? This is a real issue because I use my Yahoo Mail for eBay, Amazon, etc., and I'm now really convinced I should switch. And this is actually a question for you, Leo. I thought maybe you'd have a better sense than I do. I mean, I do. I, I know about Gmail. I really like it. Um, I would be surprised if you know if if this guy knows anyone who has sent him email who has a Gmail account. He could simply write to them and say, "Hey." 
could you invite me to Gmail? I think I've got a hundred oh, invitations I'll send him an sitting invitation. here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but but but, but and you I know, don't, and I don't know that Google is any better than Yahoo in this respect. And of course, it is frightening because we know that they're archiving everything forever. Right. Which and, is sort of frightening. And it, and we know that their business is advertising, just as Yahoo's is. So, you know, this Yahoo disclaimer it may be not something to really be terrified about. Um, uh, they, you know, they collect information. Every website collects a certain amount of information, like your IP address, uh, automatically. So they, this may be a lawyer saying, we just better disclaim this. I don't know that Yahoo is somehow trying to cross-reference your IP address with stuff you do online and so forth. But... You know, if they are, Google just as well might be. Let me, there are, however, web mail, web-based mail services that are aggressively private. Um, probably the most so is Hushmail at Hushmail.com. Uh, Hushmail is remarkable. First of all, it's PGP. All your mail is secured. And if you, it's, it's built in, it's automatic. Um, they also are extremely uh, privacy sensitive. So, and, and their business is not selling advertising, it's selling Hushmail. They do offer a free version, um, but they also offer some very advanced uh, business solutions. So, and there's, there's also C-O-T-S-E, right? C-O, I don't know that one. C-O-T-S-E dot... C, I think dot com dot net, I'm not, not sure, but I think one. it's also a, a very the strong... ultimate way of protecting your privacy online. Oh, that's interesting. I have not seen that one. Full service privacy website, your shield from the internet. So it sounds like they do proxy uh, stuff as well. I know that they have mail, so. Yeah. And another uh, uh, email service that is also aggressively. Now, I like Hushmail because it has built in PGP, so there's a lot to be said for that. But spamcop.net is, anti, is an anti spam site that's also aggressively privacy focused. So another, and I actually have a spam cop uh, um, account as well. If you if you want to avoid spam or report spam, spam cop is very useful there too. So I'm gonna to have to take a look at Kotzi. That's interesting. But a hush mail, you know, uh, Phil Zimmerman worked with them for a while, the creator of PGP. Right. Uh, I think they're a very good group, and uh, they have a lot of interesting features. But I mean, you know, email is not private, as we know. I mean, the only the only way it could be private is if you encrypt it. Exactly. Someone re- referring to themselves as anonymous sender says. At work, we have a web applications which require testing from outside our firewall. Currently, we attempt to do this with an iMac running OS 9 and a 56K modem. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> not, not the best solution, he says. We're wondering if it would be possible to use the Onion Router from either a newer OS 10 machine or a machine running XP to access our site as if we were outside the firewall. Oh, That's I see. Brilliant. I see. Brilliant. So their web application is running on their site, and they want to test them as if they're a customer. I get Yes. It. If I understood your description of Tor, it sounds like using it would give us the same view of our site as we would see from outside the firewall because our incoming connection traffic would be coming from outside. Is this right? Any pitfalls I've missed? It's, it's, it's brilliant. I think it's a perfect <laughs> idea and, and solution. Yeah, it ought to work great. I mean, what, what, what they've been doing is they've been, they have a dial-up ISP somewhere. They've, they've been using their 56K modem to dial into the ISP and then surf, surfing back to themselves from outside. And But yes, the Onion Router ought to work. And because of the Onion Router, you're able to determine the complexity of the Onion network. You could just tell it, we just want to use one. So you'd have very little latency and other problems associated with like really long multi-hop Onion routes. So that's a tre- tremendous idea. 
Microsoft does have some tools I seem to remember for doing this kind of thing, but that seems like an easier way. Free, certainly. Yeah. 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 Bob Suddeth of Dayton, Ohio. You were born in Dayton? I was born in Dayton. Wow. Yeah. From your hometown. How long did you stay in Dayton? Uh, I wasn't even conscious. I think uh, actually, <laughs> there and gone. Well, I guess I was barely conscious. My sister was born in Fairborn, and I, I'm two years older than she. So I guess, and and I think my parents left shortly were, after were they she on was the born. Run? So so I, I was you know I, I was two point something years old uh, while I was in Ohio, and I've never been back. <laughs> and then to Fairborn, and then to California. Uh, extrapolating, extrapolating from your discussion on Vista and DRM, what's to keep companies from being extorted by hackers? Uh, for example, if you don't pay us X million dollars, we'll disable all your drivers everywhere. Right, and that and that comes Same right thing. back. At the, yes, exactly. I, I I put this in here because many people have have worried about this and asked the question. So so although we just read Bob's question, this is for everyone who asked. Same story is nobody else will ever have hopefully or that would really be a problem the public i'm sorry the private keys for the public key crypto system that the aacs guards uh and and i mean as an absolute secret so that there's no way for anyone to spoof any of this information anywhere along the the chain of delivery from the aacs it's really interesting in fact there's a something we didn't talk about because it was sort of an unnecessary level of detail but the, even the production of the HD or Blu-ray that is an AACS content, the nobody knows anything more than they need to. The content provider is given some keys. The actual manufacturer is given a different set of keys. And then, of course, the 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 rendering machine, the computer or driver or display, they're, they're given their own keys, and this all kind of fits together in an interlocking way, but nobody has the ability to do anything wrong with a system because everything is protected from everything else. So, I mean, it, it is, it's a beautifully engineered system. It's just, you know, a pain to have it. <laughs> it wakes. Uh, listener Ed from Philadelphia wonders, what are the security benefits of surfing the net under a user account rather than an administrative account? Boy, I run all the time under user accounts on all my machines. I remember having heard of it several times on Security Now episodes, but would you remind me? And by the way, this is on not just on Windows, this is on Mac, on any operating system. You, you, you don't have to always run as an administrator or root or super user. You could run as a normal user. Right, and in fact... Um, of course, this was all created by Unix machines originally, where the the administrative account was called the root account, and then you would use. I mean, even even servers would log in as non-root users. So if they were compromised, they wouldn't be able to do really damaging things to the system. So so to to answer Ed's question, the idea is that when you're surfing as a user account or that is to say a, a limited user or a non-admin account, essentially the programs you're using are running with the, your privileges, that is your logon privileges. If those are limited, then the program's actions on the OS are similarly limited. So, for example, it's not able to launch code running in the kernel because that's not a privilege that a limited user has only an administrative user is able to do that so so the point is that the programs you run run with the same privileges that you do and so they're limited just like you are from doing bad things to the system 
there are some drawbacks to doing this because some programs don't work well if you're not a super user, a root, or administrator. In fact, a lot of programs don't. I found it to be a little bit easier under uh, Vista than it is, in fact, a lot easier than it is under XP. Um, so they fixed that problem from an operating system level. Yes. In fact, Vista, at one point, we will talk in depth about UAC, the user account right. control, because it's my, all users of Vista C is this box that's popping up all the time, asking them if, if for, for permission to do things. It turns out there's much more going on under oh, the hood. Yeah, it's, it's some very potent, powerful, and useful technology. So we'll certainly be doing an episode of Security Now to explain exactly what is user account control. Even if you run as administrator, you see that UAC box. Uh, yep. If you're running as a limited user, however, you'll be asked for the administrative password, which I think is a little bit more secure. I really do. Yep, um, I agree. Yeah, and that's kind of how Apple does it as well. Um, you Even if you're running as an administrator, you, you, you have to give it the password to actually give it the root permissions to make the changes it needs. Yep. Jeff Smith, but, but nevertheless, on both Apple and Windows, I almost, inv- except for XP, where, where it's just almost undoable, but in, on Vista and uh, OS X, I'm always running as a limited user, and it works great. In fact, yep. my only regret is that in Vista, it doesn't kind of require you to set up a limited user account. When you set up an account, it's automatically an administrative account. Yeah, I think that's Microsoft again recognizing that it would just be too hard yeah. to sell for right. most users. And so, but but what they've done is, and this is what we'll, we will be talking about in detail, is even an administrative account, the there there's like a lack of automation right. for the things that can happen. You will, you know, if anything tries to do things that modify the operating system. There'll be a dialogue that pops up, and this is not just a regular dialogue. There's all kinds of protection around that simple-looking UAC pop-up that you're clicking OK on, so that if some malware got in your system and tried to make a modification behind your back, even as an administrator, it would not be able to do so without your permission. Jeff Smith of Alpena, Michigan, after listening to uh, my KFI show, I guess, has a question. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. I I hope I didn't say something stupid. I learned about a very cool program thanks to Leo and his KFI podcast. It's called Crossloop. It can be found at crossloop.com. It's a simple remote desktop. Oh, yeah, this is really cool. Simple remote desktop type application, which has been very helpful for me, the family computer geek. It's amazingly simple to set up and use even for the beginner computer user. However, since I'm a listener to your Security Now podcast, I'm curious if there are any security risks to myself or others while using this program. It's a remote access program. Mind you, it has never given me any reason to suspect that I'm just, you know, I'm a cautious person when it comes to my computer security, and I'm confident that you could give this program a thorough look at how it works. What it is, is it's sort of a cross between VNC and Hamachi. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it uses it uses VNC's open source, I think it's, it's, the, it's the code from the tight VNC version uh-huh. of the open source VNC. Then what they've done is they've added... Um, cross-router penetration like Hamachi does so that essentially you're able to give give the app to another person. Uh, you have a copy. Instead of having this notion of separate client and server, which can be confusing, you've just got two different tabs. One of them is the host and one is the guest or, or however. I mean, the idea is, it is it's, it's for desktop sharing, very easy desktop sharing. Then you create a uh, uh, user accounts for yourself, and it uses a 12-digit number to sort, of, sort to sort of authenticate. So all of that's good. The only downside, and this is true of any service which is going to do 
NAT router penetration for you, like Hamachi or, or like this cross loop, is you are inherently trusting that external third party not to mess with you, not to play any games, because both users behind their routers are contacting that third party server. That's the thing which is negotiating their subsequent direct point-to-point connection between them, and that's how the NAP penetration works, as we've discussed in the past. So, there again, he has no reason to mistrust the cross-loop guys. We have no reason to mistrust them. I mean, I talked to, as you remember, Alex Pankratov, the original author of Hamachi, and, and was very convinced that he was a good guy. But I, I like the idea of having complete control myself and so I shy away a little bit from, I mean, I'm just, it just, anyone should be aware that the involvement of a third party does give them the ability, if they wanted to, to play games, which is not to say they ever would or or are, right. but that's a factor. We just don't, we don't know who they are, and so. And don't. again, it's, it's a trade-off that you make in, again, a typical security trade-off. If I don't want the responsibility for needing to configure my NAT router to, for example, doing a static port mapping into the router in order to get to my computer from the outside, if I don't want that responsibility, then I'm going to trade that for some little bit of security, probably not enough to worry about. Right, right. Steve, we've completed 12 questions and 12 answers. Unbelievable. (laughs) And since this is our 15th episode... That means you've actually done 180, and we got many more. When I when I when I checked my mail, I had 600 Whoa. postings from people came Whoa. down. So we won't be running out of questions anytime soon. No, we, we're glad to get the questions. Can you tell people once again how you uh, find the questions? Yeah, um, we mean, have where a to, form. Where to submit one? Right, we have a form at the bottom of the Security Now page. So just go to grc.com/slash/securitynow. The page will come up. And just hit end on your keyboard or scroll to the bottom. There's a form there. People can be anonymous if they choose or, well, in fact, if they want to get their questions read on the air, uh, they need to use their name and tell us where they are. Not that we want to, you know, be a, a force people to be non-anonymous, but we'd like to be able to say, hey, Jeff Smith of, you know, of Alpena, Michigan, asked right. the following question. Right. It's just more personal and more fun yeah. for us. So. So send a question to me, and uh, I'll get it, and perhaps we'll, we'll read it. And while you're at GRC.com, don't forget uh, Securable, Steve's new free security application, along with dozens of other security applications, including the great Shields Up. GRC.com is the place to go. And, you know, the one thing that's not free on GRC is the thing that is the most valuable, the great SpinWrite program, Steve's bread and butter for the last decade or so. It is the ultimate disk recovery utility, and by the way, or disk maintenance utility, I run it regularly on all my disks to catch problems before they happen, and if something happens uh, to to, to corrupt your disk or bad sectors, SpinWrite, it can almost always recover those bad sectors, recover that data, and get you back on your feet. It's really a great program. Well, and, you know, we're, we're, we're here for people, too. I, I received a, uh, an interesting note from someone over uh, Christmas. Uh, the subject was re-download SpinWrite from remote location. And he first wrote to our sales address, which Sue monitors even through the holidays. And actually, this, this was on the 23rd, so, wow. you know, not, not on Christmas Eve, but the day before. And he asked if he, he said, just wanted to say thanks so much. I, um, oh, he, he, uh, he when he first wrote, he said, I purchased SpinWrite a while back. I'm at my mom's for Christmas. 
trying to troubleshoot what looks like a hard drive problem on her computer. My spin right and license info is at home. home. Yep. Wow. Is is it possible for you to email me wow. creds to download a copy to tr- uh, to try to run on her hard drive? And then he says, I think I registered either under blah, 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 or blah, 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 uh, you know, his two email addresses that he had. If you can send information to either of those addresses, I would be able to get them from here. Many thanks and have a wonderful holiday. So Sue got his mail, looked him up uh, you, in our e-commerce system, which, you know, I wrote from scratch and it has all these capabilities. Of course you so <laughs> she, 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 she found him, uh, sent his transaction wow. code which he didn't have, and the transaction code allows any of our Spinrite owners to download Spinrite from anywhere they happen to be. So, for example, if he had it in his wallet, he could have used that in order to grab a copy. Keep your code so, with you all at all times. Well, you just never know when your mom's computer is going to crash <laughs> That's out. That's right. So, in fact, so I'll be what fixing re- my mom's computer next week, so I'm bringing my code with me. <laughs> <laughs> what was really cool was he then followed up that letter, and he said, just wanted to say thanks so much. I got the ISO burned a CD, wow. ran Spinrite, and now mom's PC seems to be running just fine. That's great. He said there had been a failure in a Windows component related to Windows Explorer. So after boot, things just pretty much stopped working. He said after Spinrite, it's all good. She's wow. thrilled to have her email and web back, so you provided her the best Christmas present this year. See, that's really interesting. Hard drive failure, uh, you know, these big hard drives now are so huge, and there's... It can happen at any time, and you that know, can give you I, all these weird, weird symptoms that I, you know, I answer all the time on the radio show. It's it's funny. I was doing some research uh, on Seagate's site because I, I'm I'm setting my new system up with serial ATA drives. I was talking to Mark Thompson, who was commenting. They've got so many systems. They've got hard drive problems all the time, and he said it's mostly the newer disks. When I was on Seagate's site, I was a little surprised by their reliability claim. This is the spec sheet. It was at 7200.9, a Barracuda, brand new Barracuda SATA 7200.9 drive. They were saying they had 0.34% failure per year. I'm going, wait a minute, 0.34% failure per year? That's one in 300, Whoa! because it's a third. One in 300 drives will fail per year. That's high. It's high, Leo. Think of how many millions of drives they sell. Now I know why I'm getting so many testimonials for Spinrite. Yeah, I mean, one in 300 are going to die per year? And even even in this case, this wasn't even a drive failure. This wouldn't even have counted there. This is just some error on the data. So, yeah, it must be, uh, you know, even more, you know, one in 100. I was really surprised that apparently the reliability is beginning to come down. As as you say, when you put, you know, a, a terabyte of data, you know, or eight terabits on a drive, which which drives are now up to. How do you how do you get them all back? Yeah. Well, grc.com, that's the place to get the answer to that question. I know how to get them back. <laughs> Spin right. Uh, by the way, I want to thank our sponsor, Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. They're just great folks. We unfortunately had pre-taped our show last week, so I couldn't mention they had they had a, an event uh, in Tor- in uh, Toronto. Uh, last well, actually it was this week, and I wasn't able to give us give them a plug, uh, unfortunately because uh, we had pre-taped. But uh, I'll mention future events. It's actually great. They do these events where you can go and uh, you could try it out. You could see it at work. Um, and and the Star Security Gateway is a really really remarkable um, device. In fact, um, 
they, they wanted me to mention V7. This is a new technology they're launching this month. You may not know about this. I will, uh, I'll get more details on it uh, from the folks. But it's, it's an email uh, encryption, or actually just a basic encryption uh, technology that they're building into this uh, ASG. Just want, you know, that's the beauty of it. It's an open source platform. It's, it's like it looks about the size of a router, the Star Security Gateway. It's running open source Linux. But because it's, it's such a powerful platform, they can add these plugins. It has VPN capabilities, intrusion protection, content filtering, anti-spam, industrial strength firewall. Um, it's very high performance. Look, the best thing to do is just try it free. And, you know, it's beautiful because sometimes you'll just get new features. They just download into the uh, firewall. Contact Astaro at astaro.com. Shouldn't call it a firewall. It's a security appliance. Or call Astaro at 877, the number 4, Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O, and they will uh, schedule a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway Appliance uh, in your business. And we thank Astaro for supporting security now. And I'm sorry I didn't get to mention that event. I feel bad about that. It was uh, it was actually as we record this is today it was last night in uh, Toronto, ah. so at Lynch Digital Media. Oh well, next time, Steve. I think we have run out of time. We got another good hour, and then yep. some. <laughs> yeah, I, I will see you next week. I will. Uh, let's see. Next week I'll be in uh, in Providence visiting my mom. I'll probably be calling you for a spin right serial number. <laughs> <laughs> we got him. I'll talk to you then. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Security now.